So we're in a stretch in our sermon series on the gospel according to Mark, where the immensity of Jesus's power is revealed. A couple of weeks ago, we saw how Jesus rebuked a storm on a lake and the wind and the waves obeyed his command. Last week, we saw how Jesus freed a man's spirit from the legion of demons, terrorizing his heart and his mind. Next week, Jesus will reveal that he has the power uh, even to uh, defeat the forces of death. This week, Jesus also reveals a miraculous power, a miraculous power for healing. In this case, a woman who has had an uncontrollable bleeding for over a decade is cured by merely touching Jesus's clothing. Honestly, the healing itself is a very strange story. In verses 27 and 28, we hear uh, that she, see, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, figuring, thinking to herself, that if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And we read in verse 29 that immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her, her suffering. And then we hear this strange line in verse 30. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. And he turned around in the crowd trying to figure out who touched his cloak. This is the only time in Mark, in, in his telling of Jesus's life, that we hear this phrase, the power went out from him. Truthfully, no one really knows how to explain what happened. All kinds of people were touching him. In fact, so much so that we hear the the disciples say to him when he says, who touched me? And they look around and they're like, oh my gosh, a ton of people are touching you. What do you, how can you even ask that question? Who touched me? And there are plenty of other stories in this telling and in the other gospels of Jesus being pressed upon in crowds. And it's not like every time someone touched him that they got zapped and whatever they were feeling got healed and that he was drained of his power. That just doesn't happen anywhere else. In this morning's story, there is some strange connection between these two in that moment. And they both knew it. She was healed immediately, and she knew it. Jesus knew something powerful had happened. But other than that, it's hard to know. Thankfully for us this morning, I don't think that that is the most important aspect of the story for us to to notice. The way that Mark sets things up, I think we as much are meant to notice who was healed as how. 
I believe that Mark sets up a contrast in this story to reveal that Jesus treated all human beings equally with love and care, and that therefore we as followers of Christ are called to do the same. Notice again how the, the story begins. When Jesus had again crossed over in the boat, a large crowd gathered around him. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and earnestly plead with him, my daughter's ill, come place your hands on her and heal her. A man whose daughter is sick sees Jesus. We don't know if the man had gone looking for Jesus, or maybe he just sees Jesus and takes advantage of the opportunity. We do know his status in society. He was a leader of the synagogue. We know his name, Jairus. We know that he goes right up to Jesus, even blocks Jesus's path, and boldly asks a favor, come, please, my daughter is ill, lay your hands on her and heal her. And Jesus says, sure, okay, I will. Then that story is interrupted by a woman. We don't know her name. And Mark never tells us even if he knew it. We also don't hear anything, at least directly, about her status in society. We do hear that she spent all she had on doctors trying to be healed. And as one commentator noted, this is an implicit clue that she likely had been very wealthy. Only wealthy people could afford doctors at the time. And it sounds like she had paid at least several to help her. But unlike what Mark tells us about Jairus, we have no idea what her specific status had been in society. We do know that she did set out to find Jesus. But when she does, she doesn't boldly block his way and ask a favor. Instead, she sneaks up behind him and merely touches his clothing. Now, in part, she likely approached Jesus secretly because of her affliction, whatever it was. Humans discharging fluids of any sort at that time, male or female, humans discharging fluids were considered unclean. It likely would have been very awkward, to say the least, to openly reveal to Jesus in front of a crowd what her situation was. But I side with Douglas Hare, the professor of, uh, a professor at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary on this. He believes that she was just as likely to have been self-conscious of her status in a patriarchal society as she, uh, of which she was a part as she was of her illness. Hare surmises that the woman's timidity is due not to her uncleanness or not to that alone, but to her role. Among Jewish social structures, 
women ranked only a little above children and slaves. They were not expected to study the Torah, and their role in worship was severely restricted. In some circles, it was regarded as inappropriate for religious men to even converse with women. The woman may have thought that Jesus would be offended if she approached him directly, like a man or Jairus specifically, with a request for healing. Everything up in this, uh, up until this point in this story, everything highlights the inequality of Jairus and the woman. But then we come to Jesus and the way that Jesus treats the two people. At first, it seems like Jesus is angry and is going to be like most of the men at that time would have been. We hear in verse 30, immediately he felt the power go out of him and he turns around and asked, who touched my clothes? The disciples again, you see all these people. Uh, they think that he has, maybe it's a little hot out. He's having heat stroke. You have the, you, you can ask who touched me with, when so many people are. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Jesus persists in wanting to know who had connected with him in this unusual way. And I think the woman probably realizes that Jesus is not going to give up until he discovers this. And so she decides to face whatever it is will be, that will be. She's, we hear verse 33, the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. Again, considering her lowly status in society, she is probably expecting to be humiliated. Instead, Jesus publicly responds by elevating her for her courage and her faith. In verse 34, he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace be freed from your suffering. It literally is more, go in peace, freed from your suffering because of what you have done. I believe Jesus was as persistent as he was in having this person make themselves known precisely in order to uplift that person in front of the crowd. Jesus must have known that anyone in need of so much healing, but unwilling to confront him face to face must have been ashamed of something, whether it was a man or a woman. But to Jesus, no one ever has reason to be ashamed before God, especially for seeking God's care. Our Hebrew First Testament reading, that reading from Genesis and the creation story, reminded us that all humanity is created in the image of God, male and female and everyone on the spectrum of gender. 
Jesus reveals this equality of love and care in his response to this woman. He addresses her affectionately as daughter. For all we know, Jesus is only 30 years old. This woman's been suffering for at least 12 years. She could easily have been older than him. And yet, he, know, he responds, daughter, your faith has healed you. Jesus knows that she is worried about how he will respond to her. So his very first word to her lets her know that she is loved and she is safe. Jesus then commends her faith in front of the whole crowd. He speaks to her to give her that dignity and respect, but he does it openly before the whole crowd. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace, freed from your suffering. Even though that, uh, or excuse me, um, by doing this, no one will be able to even try to shame her by saying you shouldn't have done that. Jesus makes it very clear that what she has done is a, is a wonderful thing that she is commended for. And he says to her, go in peace, knowing that you are healed, even though this is a somewhat common farewell for the time, go in peace. It's easy to understand that this commendation to her, go in peace in this moment, is weighted more than normal. Jesus wants her to know to the depths of her soul and wants everyone else to know that she and God are good. And that after all that she has been through, 12 years of this incurable hemorrhaging, losing everything she has in trying to be healed, the shame that has been imposed on her by society, Jesus reassures her that her own courage in coming to him for healing has assured that her suffering has ended. What we see in this story is what Jesus came into our world to reveal. And that is that God loves all human beings equally. And that all human beings are worthy of being treated equally with care. This is how Jesus lived. And it's how Jesus' followers lived and as we are called to live. One of the commentators on this story noted that in Greek and Roman society at this time, it was common practice to abandon female babies at birth because they weren't worth keeping. Christians refused to do this, claiming that their Lord Jesus taught them that females are, the equal, are equal in value in God's sight. Paul confirms this truth, this response from the followers of Christ in our Greek New Testament passage. He says, and I, often I'll, I'll translate this uh, instead of you are all sons of God through faith in Christ, often I'll, I'll go ahead and do the translation as I say it, you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Because Paul really is after uh, including everyone, male and female, 
in this, not just sons, literal sons. But this morning I leave this because in this time and place, that context of sons, that, that all that it represented, is astonishing that, that Paul extends that to daughters as well, to women and girls. You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is acknowledging that in God's sight, all human beings have full rights, even though, according to society, only the son had right to the, to the uh, to be an heir. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, all of you, and heirs according to the promise. In, fa- in fact, Paul takes each of the main categories of binary inequality of the time and says none of this applies in God's dominion. Neither the inequality between Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. With God, all are equal in love and care. We have a long way to go until we reach that point where this equality of love and care is the lived experience of all people in our society. However, this past Wednesday, I saw one of the most hopeful examples that I have seen in years that we might at least now be heading in the right direction. At noon Eastern Standard Time on Wednesday, Joe Biden was sworn in as the new president of the United States. And as much as I am uh, thankful to God, literally, that Joe Biden is now our president still, Joe Biden is an old white man. Joe represents all that has been in terms of who has had power and prestige in our country for centuries. But a little bit later, Amanda Gorman stood at the podium and lit a fire illuminating all that might be and all that should be. There she was, as she identified herself a skinny black girl, descended from slaves, raised by a single mother. She spoke as wisely, powerfully, and beautifully as anyone that day. And for me, Amanda Gorman and her words represented the hope not only of that inauguration, but of our country. For me, Joe Biden represented all that has been exalted in our broken society. And Amanda Gorman represents all that should be and will be equally exalted by God and all followers of Christ. So let us borrow some of Ms. Gorman's astonishing poem 
to remind us of what Jesus taught and lived, and that is that all human beings are equally worthy of love and care. This is segments from The Hill We Climb by Amanda Gorman. We are striving to forge a union with purpose, committed to all cultures, colors, characters, and conditions of man. And so we lift our gazes not to what stands between us, but what stands before us. We close the divide because we know to put our future first, we must put our, our differences aside. We lay down our arms so we can reach out our arms to one another. We seek harm to none and harmony for all. Scripture tells us to envision that everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree and no one shall make them afraid. We shall not march back to what was, but move to what shall be. If we merge mercy with might, and might with right, then love becomes our legacy. We will raise this wounded world into a wondrous one. When day comes, we step out of the shade, aflame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it, for there is always light, if only we are brave enough to see it if only we are brave enough to be it. So help us, God. Amen.